Hello, friends, and welcome to another episode of While We Were Waiting, where we share expert insight and true tales from inside the restaurant industry. I'm your host, Martha Madison. And I am your co-host and Martha's husband, AJ Gilbert. On today's episode, I'm your guest, (laughs) and we're going to dig into the topic of how to find a job. With so many talented hospitality professionals on the market, we thought it might be a good time for us to share some tips on how to land that dream job, some do's and don'ts of the job search. We also have a terrific story for you today about the relationships restaurant workers form with their regular guests. But first... Well, but first, I wanted to thank you, Martha Madison, um, for starting this podcast. Um, I... uh, you know, it's been a uh, interesting exploration, and I had some work to do over the last couple of weeks. Some kind of real work on the restaurant in Dallas, and some negotiations, and we're working to kind of create some modifications to the lease to allow for the unusual times that we're in. And I found it really helpful that we'd been doing this. It was uh, great to hear everybody's stories and point of view and great to just kind of talk through so much of the stuff. And I I felt much better about going into this negotiation and into these meetings. And uh, I appreciate that we got to do this together. So thank you. Oh, that's a very nice thing to say. And I'm glad it's helpful. And, um, you know, that's, that's the point, right? We want to put ourselves out there and, and, um, and hear from our listeners as well. And it's a, it's a learning and a teaching and a storytelling and it's working. So good. I'm glad. Yeah. And the universality of everybody's story, the operators, um, you know, everybody's kind of going through the same thing and, you know, and, and not just the people we talk to, if you listen to, you know, other podcasts and just read anything, you know, you know, I think that, we're kind of in this weird phase right now because, and I'm back to my meeting. So, you know, I met with the landlord in their office. We're trying to figure out, and I can't really get into too much detail now because it's largely unresolved, but some ways to kind of modify our lease to allow for the fact that we might not be able to be open. Um, You know, we just don't know, uh, you know, when uh, there could be another shutdown or whatever. You know, it's just really interesting to see how people's, perspective is really shaped by the now and the now this there's all this ppp money in the system i don't think that we're seeing the damage that will ultimately manifest yet mm-hmm. and that's kind of what um you know shaped my discussion with with these guys was, right but you know, i think you went down there with the understanding of like you know the world is crashing everything's going to close again we need to prepare for that i don't want to have these conversations you know as it's happening let's let's work it out now and you get down there and they're like everything's fine there's people everywhere what are you worried about life is good nobody's not paid their rent and <laughs> when you came home you were like i don't know if they were crazy or if I'm crazy, (laughs) but, um, you know, there's definitely more than one perspective on, on what to expect going forward. And yes, you're right. It is because there's a lot of PPP money out there and that hasn't run out yet. Unemployment hasn't run out yet and not to be a Debbie Downer, but we really don't know what we're working with until that happens. so, So anybody who says that they know 
is crazy. Right. right? Nobody knows. <laughs> and, and, and that could be somebody who says that they know that the world's going to spin off its access. And that could be somebody who says, you know, that, that it's just a V shaped recovery and it's all over. Right. So in Texas, I, you know, we're a little bit ahead of perhaps other parts of the country, maybe two to four weeks, depending on where you are, because things have been reopening here a bit faster. But it's all going to be based on hospital bed capacity. And it doesn't matter what your politics are, how you wish the world was. If the hospital beds are full, they're going to have to close down places of assembly again, because you can't treat people with COVID in the parking lot. And that is the ultimate reality. But I don't know that I agree. Like, I feel like at this point, our governor here in Texas anyway, has made his deal with the devil. Like we're going forward no matter what. And I feel like I I, I totally disagree. I mean, everything that he has said, all of his press conferences, what he says every time is the hospital beds are empty. Therefore, everything's fine, which is a pretty uh I, I wish that people, I wish that politicians were a bit more honest and just said, our analysis is people are going to get sick. People are going to die. Most of them are quite old. And that is the price we're going to pay to keep the economy open. Instead of saying everything's safe and there's really nothing to worry about. Um, and secretly or without a great deal of fanfare, we are watching hospital bed occupancy to make a decision of how far we're going to go with this because that's what they're doing. They are daily checking the number of ventilators that are available, which is becoming less and less relevant, uh, the number of ICU beds, the number of hospital beds and the emergency room visits. And that's the indication that they're using. And right now, it, it is true that there is plenty of hospital capacity. It's getting tighter and tighter. And that would be the thing that would lead to another shutdown. So you, you know what we're trying to figure out for opening this business is you know, when would be a good time to kind of stick our head up and see if we're going to be shut down again, or, you know, if, if it's going to pass or, you know, what's going to happen. And that's, that's really what we're looking at. Well, I think we've made the plan that we're going to shoot for September and (laughs) kind of wait and see what happens between now and then. But I'm excited that we're getting to move forward. And I'm very grateful that we have some runway to make the necessary changes that we need to make before we open. Boy, how lucky we're really It's really turned out well. I mean, you know, you know, some, some of Dallas's best restaurants, and I'm not saying like, best like they have fresh figs i'm saying like good places that are super financially successful they're closed right now because uh they've had people who have had covid um and they've had to shut down for a couple weeks a lot of them happening here in dallas just saw like four or five places say yep we've got covid we're out for two weeks yeah and then another four or five that announced kind of oddly that they had somebody who had covid but everybody's fine (laughs) and then you know if you look at like the chat or discussion that follows that it's like fuck those guys i'm never eating there again so it's like a lose it's like a lose lose right you know i mean obviously the best thing to do for the guests is to close that's what they want you to do but no the right thing to do is to test everybody and why can't we do that why can't we test the whole staff close for two days wait for the results and then everyone that's not sick can go back to work and why is that not happening well, I think that there's a there's well, there's time and there's money, right? So it's not cheap. Uh, I was just reading about some smaller restaurant that had spent sixteen hundred dollars in the last two weeks testing people, and she said she just can't afford to do it anymore. Right. Um, and uh, 
I don't know that the test really correlates with what's happening in the restaurant. So I don't know that you're really making things safer to test people. I think you do have to wait until there's an, uh, there's at least one person that's sick and then you have to kind of close down, let the virus incubate. And then you can test four or five days later and see if other people have it. Right. So I don't know that, that, I mean, obviously if you tested everybody every day, if you could have a machine at the restaurant, I guess that would be effective, right? So people come in and and they take a test. And I'm not boy. saying to test all the guests. I'm saying to test when you know one of your staff members has it, instead of closing and quarantining everyone for two weeks, why can't you test your 30 people, oops, your 30 people who work for you? Oh, I think, it, I think that is what you do, but I think it takes two weeks. I, I don't think you can just test everybody and assume that if they've come in contact with it, that that they're going to test positive. I think you have to wait and give it a chance to incubate. In the world of soap operas, which is my other job, um, Bold and the Beautiful went back to production yesterday and already shut down after one day um, because they have to really build their new health services department or whatever they're calling it to do these testing, um, to do the tests with like the performers and the producers have to get tested a certain amount of time, uh, a certain amount of times every week. And SAG and uh, the Producers Guild, you know, put out a statement last week saying, you know, our guidelines are that performers should be tested three times a week and everyone else once a week. And I'm like, this sounds great, except how do we get that many tests? And what happens if someone's positive? Like, yeah, too much kissing. Well, Well, they they suggested now that uh, for love scenes that people bring in their real life spouses to be like hand doubles and stuff. So it looks like you're going to come to work with me, honey. <laughs> or uh, or their secondary thing was suggesting blow-up dolls, <clears throat> like creative editing around making out with blow-up dolls. I'm like, I just don't know what my career is kind of like uh, come to. <laughs> I mean, I, I just assume that would look as ridiculous as it sounds. But Listen, I- and anyone who thinks that soap opera actors are bad have no idea. <laughs> the variables we're working with already, like shooting so many pages in one day, but now we're going to be making out with dolls. Everybody's going to be so pissed when one of those dolls wins an Emmy too. (laughs) Oh my God. (laughs) So can you wear a mask on the set of a soap opera? So this is like the new controversy is masking, right? Mm -hmm. And people And why is it a, a controversy? It's so stupid. Yeah, I don't get the controversy part. I mean, it's it's shown to be effective. It reminds me a bit of driving on the freeway, right? Everybody who's going much faster than you is crazy, and everybody who's driving slower than you is a fool, right? So you see somebody driving in their car with a mask on, you're like, boy, that person is being way too cautious. Oh my God, I and totally you... did that the other day. Accident. <laughs> then... I just forgot to take it off. And then you, oh, you left yours on. And then you see somebody in the supermarket without a mask, and you're like, boy, that person's reckless, right? So it's... Uh, you know, we've all decided that the right amount of masking is the amount that that we do. But um, wouldn't it be nice if we all stopped judging each other and just minded our own fucking business? <laughs> well, you get so upset when you go to the store and people aren't wearing masks. I don't get upset. I just don't go anywhere near them. And yeah, maybe yeah. I give them a little look up and down because you know they're the the point is they're it's not about them protecting themselves. They're not protecting me, and I'm protecting them, and that's some BS, right? Let's just all pinky swear we don't want to die from COVID and like do the thing that shows that we won't spread it as much this way. Why is that hard? 
I don't. Yeah, I. It, this is literally the least people could do. I mean, even if you believe that it's all a scam or whatever, just put on the mask. It, it's uh, it's it going to does... be a fashion statement for decades to come anyway. So just get used to it. Be a leader. I, Make a cool I actually, mask. <laughs> I actually think that girls look really good in masks. And you you told me that this was something like Handmaid's Tale. I just think that there's something like about the line of the mask. It's it's pretty. It's a, It's a nice fashion accessory. You don't think that it's just cool because it covers up their mouth and then you don't have to listen to them talk anymore? They just talk louder. <laughs> we, all look, love... we, all, we all look each other in the eyes now more. That's good. Maybe that's it. Maybe it highlights people's eyes. But I, I And I, I love hearing women speak, so it's yeah. certainly not that. Well, you certainly have a house full of that. <laughs> no kidding. No kidding. While We Were Waiting is brought to you by One House Hospitality Recruiters, a full-service hospitality recruitment firm serving all of North America. For more information, check out our website at one-house.com. That's O-N-E-H-A-U-S.com. So I want to introduce our guest today, which is Martha Madison, Me. my wife and our co-host, and also a director at One House Hospitality Recruiting, which is spelled just like it sounds. Not like it sounds. It's O-N-E-H-A-U-S. Oh, right, right. <laughs> so there's a lot of people that are kind of half employed now. I think that, you know, we're just so uncertain about where things are going. And uh, there are people that have been laid off. And there's obviously the potential for more layoffs, perhaps mm-hmm. not, but I'd say Definitely, probably. 100%. I, I, mm-hmm. I had a boss who used to say, if you don't have keys to the front door, your job is in jeopardy when the company makes <laughs> cuts. And I, I think there's probably some truth it's to that. It's true. When people are making financial cuts, they're going to make them with the people who make the most money usually. Right. And they also don't want to get up in the morning and open the restaurant. Right. They so don't have to go make the donuts. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. So I thought, you know, Martha is a recruiter and I've had the opportunity to listen to this woman speak a great deal uh, on the phone and interviewing people and talking about her work. And um, it's really changed the way that I see recruiting and uh, how I would give advice to somebody who is looking for a job. Mm-hmm. And I thought we could try and share some of that. Um, there's a, It's a big subject. And I think we'll just cut into a few things mm-hmm. that might be helpful. But I, I think the first thing, Martha, for people that are just been laid off or are concerned that they're going to be, or perhaps are sitting home getting unemployment, which is going to end at some point mm-hmm. in the future, how long should people give themselves to do a job search for a, a management chef position? Well, I think I think that if you know you're ready to go or you know you might go, you should start right now. <laughs> That's, yeah, it, you I'm always surprised wait. at how right. long it can take. And I, I think that, it, you know, nobody should wait until they need to get to work. No, right? I think that you should imagine a scenario in which someone right this very second is offering you your dream job. Would you take it? If the answer is yes, you're ready to make that transition and you should reach out to your recruiters. Yes. What are the, a lot of the mistakes that people make when they go to a recruiter? Um when they're, you know, when they're working with a recruiter, what, what could they do to make your job easier to help them get placed and find a job? Well, the first thing I would say is answer the phone when you make an appointment with me. Oh, the appointment time. Boy, you get so frustrated. Oh, I will never talk to those people again. Like if you yeah. cannot keep a phone call appointment with me, um, I mean, I understand we're all busy and stuff, but you know, 
I'm here to help you. And so, and I have a full calendar every day of phone calls with people who are competing for the job you want. So if you can't answer the phone uh, without, you know, for, for that appointment, uh, I, I don't, I'm moving on. I'm moving on to the next guy. Now, sometimes I will be fair and say some people will email and be like, you know, there's been this emergency or I'm so sorry I got stuck in a meeting. You know, if they're apologetic and can talk to me that day, you know, I'll, I'll try and rearrange for that. But, you, you know, get, you get a chance or two, but maybe <laughs> don't miss depends. the appointment. Yeah. yeah, it depends. And if I'm already on the fence, like I already see your resume as maybe not being the right fit, I'm just probably going to move on to the next guy. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting because the interview process is in a way, a little tryout, right? Yes. Somebody becomes kind of an employee. They have a schedule. They have some responsibilities. They have to provide information. And how they do that is probably equally, if not more important to what the information is, right? So if you can't organize yourself to comply with the requirements of the interview process, I think most employers are going to conclude you're not going to be a great employee. Right. Listen, I mean, the recruiter, we know our job is kind of the buffer, right, between the client and the candidate. And But I know from my perspective, even though I'm probably going to be more forgiving than the, the people who might employ you, I'm still watching everything you do and how you do it as a sign of how you're going to behave in that job. Um, and I, you know, every data point along that line, you know, from the day that I interview you through the day that I negotiate your deal, these are all data points at which I could say to the client at any time, you know what, I'm not sure this is actually going to work out, you know, because and you're not doing this to be punitive. You're no, doing this because you're concerned that that's not going to work out. I'm doing right? it because I want the match between the candidate and the client to be a good one, a long-term good fit. That's a, the best case scenario for all three of us in this equation, right? We, we want our candidates to be successful. And if any point along this interview process, I feel like you might not be successful, I'm, I'm going to help my clients pivot to the person that is going to be successful. So, you know, our goal is for you to be successful and to get the job, but also know that you're probably competing uh, against an entire pool of people. So it's important to really present your best self the whole way through the process. So, you know, this is, I'm honestly having a little bit of trouble putting this into a question, but there is, when people are running a restaurant, they are king of their kingdom, mm -hmm. whether they're the owner or the general manager or the chef, they're in their own world. And, you know, they might have a boss, but, you know, they probably have 20 or 30 people that are working for them. And this restaurant could be the best restaurant in the world, mm -hmm. or it could be the worst restaurant in Fresno. Mm -hmm. it's still their world that they're the king of, right? Right. Do you find that it's hard for people to transition out of these leadership roles into, you know, kind of uh, subjugating themselves into the interview process? And Yes. <laughs> I mean, it's we've done it. You and I have done it at different times in our, you know, uh, post-restaurant career. And um, I think that it shows a lot about your ability to be humble in those situations and, you know, we have to remember at the end of the day that this is the hospitality industry. And in order to actually be hospitable, you have to embody a certain amount of humility. <laughs> so, you know, I try and remind my candidates who may be more senior in their experience that sometimes you have to be open to taking a step back in order to get in with a company where you can really like fly forward, right? 
And, and if you're not willing to do that, then it's going to be a much more difficult process for you. If you could tell some of these people, and I'm going to test it, you tell me if you agree with mm -hmm. this. It's not that it's not about what you've accomplished. It's just not relevant right now. Right. That's exactly right. And know that all the experience that you've you know, gathered and achieved through your career is going to translate to your next job, no matter what it is. And I also like to tell people that cream always rises to the top. Go into the new job, humble and open and do your very best and you will rise just like, you know, cream rises to the top. <laughs> so. so as a recruiter and as a restaurateur, and, you know, we've certainly seen a lot of people that have had a lot of jobs, maybe because they had substance abuse problems. We've seen people who have lost jobs because they've been incarcerated and, um, you know, and have a criminal record maybe for drugs or, or something. And, you know, I think apropos of kind of what society is going through right now, if, if this is your story, if it's hard for you to find a job because of something that perhaps you feel ashamed of or things that are in the past and you really feel are not going to be part of your future, what's the best way to get a recruiter to understand that and, and help you move forward? I mean, for me, I can only speak for myself. Uh, the more open that you're going to be with me, I think the more I'm going to understand the overall picture and be able to advocate for you, uh, um, you know, the best way I can. Um, again, I'll say, you know, as the recruiter, I'm the buffer. I'm the person you can say all that to and know that, you know, I'm going to have your best interest at heart and how I present you to the client. Um, you know, I do think it's important to, to recognize, especially now in this time that we're in, that a lot of people do have what we call gap years on their resume where they may have had to take care of an elderly parent or maybe they did get incarcerated for something. You know, it's important to know the why behind that. And from where I sit, I can't always specifically ask you those questions. It's against the law. So the more open and forthright you are with me, the, the better I'm going to understand those things and be able to present you in a way that the clients are going to trust me and meet you. Right. Why are you such a better interviewer than I, I could get through two or three interviews. And to me, when I start an interview and I realize that this isn't going to work, and I probably realized that too soon in the process sometimes, I, if, if there was like a teleporter and ejector seat and I could disappear, I would, it's so hard to continue that. And I, I, I'm saying it out loud and I want to be better about it, but I can't do it. I can't interview 20 people a day. And you have these great conversations. You're enjoying the experience. Why is that? What, what, what am I doing wrong? I don't think you're doing anything wrong. I just think it's not for you. <laughs> I think um, you know, I've always had a, a very genuine and deep love of, of humanism. I love learning about people. I love hearing everybody's story. Um, I try to ask the specific questions I need to have, you know, right off the bat and then really just ask the one question, you know, how did you get started in hospitality? Tell me your story. And people will tell you their story for the most part. And you also have to remember you're dealing with people who are in hospitality. They're used to, you know, having conversations with people and they want to connect with people. If I feel during that 30 minutes, I'm unable to connect with you. I feel like it's, it challenges, you know, 
my thought that maybe you should be in hospitality. <laughs> so, you know, I, I think I do connect with 95% of the people I talk to. And I think that is, that's the underlying thing I'm looking for. All the other stuff is just, you know, stuff we can package and wrap up and sell the right way. If you're someone who genuinely has a love and affection for people and, and really does want to create a sense of community around you and you are positive and optimistic and these things that are so important in the restaurant, um, everything else is easy. I really think that if you're, if you find yourself with a recruiter, who's really honest with you and can tell you, you know, what's for you, mm -hmm. what's not for you, you know, what you should be applying for, you know, that is going to be the best relationship. Um, and as somebody that's actually concerned about you finding a, a placement, because if, if you're not getting any pushback as to what your ideas are or what you think kind of job you're going to get, mm -hmm. they're probably not seriously working with you uh, because it's unlikely that, you know, most people say, I want to make, you know, X number of dollars and I want this position because I used to have this position. And that starts kind of the process where they align with what what's going to work. And I think a good recruiter is really going to help you find something that 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 you can be placed in and that you'll be successful in. And, and, uh, I hope everybody can find somebody like you guys, Martha. Oh, thanks, honey. And now it's story time. Today's story comes to you from my very best friend in the world, Megan Tall. Megan spent 16 years bartending at the Upper West Side neighborhood spot, Bella Giardino, while she pursued a career as an actress and a singer. Megan now lives in Katona, New York with her husband, Alex, and two young sons. In this story, Megan explains how she bonded with guests in a very unexpected way. The restaurant that I worked at uh, for 16 years in Manhattan on 71st Street uh, is now called Polpette 71, but will always and forevermore be Bello Giardino to me, which in Italian sort of loosely means beautiful garden, but that was kind of our theme. Everything we did there was not exactly as it should be, but it all worked out really beautifully. Um, we had a, a big garden in the back, but my position was behind the bar. I had been hired to pour Chianti, make espressos, and take delivery orders. And what I ended up doing was helping couples to get married and catching babies and uh, soothing broken hearts and um, doing any number of sort of therapeutic things. What kept me there for so long is that I got to meet all of these wonderful people. I met my husband there. Um, he came in for uh, meatballs and a glass of rosé. I met a little boy named Sean who was 11 when I started there and is now graduated from Harvard, living in Paris. He studies microbiology and theater in French. And he was this grimy little kid who ate tiramisu. And now he's this incredible man. And I was able to watch that happen from, you know, my place behind the bar every week when he came in with his family for dinner. As one part of my job, I was responsible for answering the phone, the restaurant phone, and taking delivery orders. 
people ordered all the time. And people sometimes ordered the same thing. Sometimes they ordered four times a week and sometimes they ordered for years on end. So I actually got to develop relationships with these people, um, some of which were not so favorable. I will not say the name of this couple, this elderly woman and gentleman, um, but I will say that their phone number was 212- And then they would order their meal through loud arguments with each other. Honey, are you going to have the chicken? You're having the same chicken you had last chicken meal night. You didn't like it. She didn't like it. You know, it was soggy the last time she got, honey, let's get the spaghetti. Then I had some really lovely people who would call and I had uh, two examples. One was Jay for Jason. He would call two or three times a week. And when I answered, good evening, Bella Giardino, he'd say, hi, order for delivery, please. I said, oh, hi, how are you? You know, but in the beginning, we weren't really close friends. So I would say, could I have your address, please? And he would give it to me. And then he would say his apartment number, 19J for Jason. So after some weeks, I said, you know, is your name Jason? He said, oh, yes, it is. He would always order for himself and Bailey. And so I'd hear them back and forth. Um, hi, oh, hi, Megan, it's Jason. I'm going to order. I am going to have this tonight. Uh, Bailey, what would you like? Bailey, you're going to have the meatballs? Bailey's going to have the meatballs. And I'm going to have, uh, I really, really love that chicken limon with the side of broccoli rabs. So I, Bailey won't have any of that, I'll, but we'll share. In my mind's eye, I saw this sort of young, you know, mid-20s gay kind of tweaky little guy, Jay for Jason, and his equally young, cute, gay boyfriend. One day I was standing behind the bar and I had my French window open and Nick was out sitting on his little seat outside and I hear him engaged in conversation with someone and I'm listening and I thought, I know that voice. Who is that? And I turned around and there was this man and he was 55 and very professional looking, suit and tie, little overweight. And he had with him this absolutely gorgeous golden retriever. And he was taking him out for a walk and had stopped to say hi to Nick. And they were chatting. And I, I looked up and I said, is that, do, excuse me, do I know you? And he looked and he said, Megan? I said, yeah. He goes, it's me, Jason. Say hi to Bailey, the golden retriever. I learned that Jay for Jason and his boyfriend were actually, you know, middle-aged guy and his golden retriever. Another experience of the same sort who I really, really loved was a, a woman named P30A. Her name eventually I learned was actually Amy. And she would call four times a week, five times a week. She'd say, hi for delivery. And I'd say, hi, how are you, P30A? And she'd say, you've got it, my dear. That was all she needed to say to me. You've got it, my dear. And I knew exactly what her order was. I knew exactly what to send to her. I knew that her daughter had allergies. Sometime years into it, I was behind the bar, slow afternoon, waiting for customers to come in. And this young woman was walking by and she was with a friend of hers. And I heard her say to him, oh, hold on. I'm going to go in. I'm going to go in and talk to my friend. She came in and stopped at the top of the stairs and looked at me and said, are you Megan? I said, yes. She said, do you know who I am? I said, no. <laughs> and she said, oh, I thought maybe you would recognize my voice. And as she was saying that, I realized, oh my God, it's P30A. And I looked at her and said, P30A. 
She said, yes. And so we're hugging and crying and I'm asking about her daughter. And then I said, it's so nice to meet you. And her friend who had come in off the street with her is now completely confused. She said, wait a minute. You said I'm going in to talk to my friend. I thought you knew her. And we were both like, we do. We know each other. We've just never met. You know, we're living in a time where people are a little more isolated than they used to be. And we have to figure out how to connect with each other in a way that we haven't before. And um, I, I'm lucky to have had that experience. I, I know that there's a, a different way of, of appreciating each other. Thanks again for tuning in to While We Were Waiting. You can find us and our episode pictures at whilewewerewaitingpodcast.com. And if you'd like to share your stories with us, we definitely want to hear from you. Just shoot us an email at stories at whilewewerewaitingpodcast.com. You can follow us on all social platforms at Waiting Podcast. And if you like what you're hearing, leave us a review. Hit that subscribe button anywhere you listen to podcasts. Until we meet again, wear your mask, wash your hands, and check out Days of Our Lives weekdays on NBC. Check your local listings. <laughs> Take care, everyone. Maybe if I close my eyes, I'll wake up back home. Maybe if I close my eyes.